Metallica, here they come, the kings of metal. Hey, this is Mick Wall, and you are listening to Metal Up Your Podcast. Welcome to Metal Up Your Podcast. I'm Ethan Luck. And I'm Clint Wells. And this is episode 208. And Clint Wells, you know who we got on the show today? A very special person. Really special, Stefan Shirazi. Now, many of you know who he is. I know that for a fact. And those of you who don't will have undoubtedly read his work. He is the editor-in-chief of So What Magazine. He's a, a journalist. Uh, he's worked with a million great bands. He wrote for a million great publications. But for what's relevant for this podcast is he's the editor-in-chief of So What Magazine he also does photography uh, on the road live with the band. You've seen him. You've read his stuff. He does the roundtables. Very intelligent and very sweet man. Mm-hmm. And, you know, <clears throat> I've been reading his stuff for decades. And so such an honor to get to meet him. I want to give a shout out to Dave Ferraro for brokering the deal, as it were. Not all heroes wear capes, Ethan. You know this. Not all heroes wear capes. Honey, please. I know this. And, uh, you know, he got us in touch with Stefan. Stefan and I had a phone conversation this week, um, just getting to know one another. And he's such a sweet guy and and such a a vital part of bringing, you know, that access, that Metallica access Mm -hmm. that we've all, I think, frankly, been spoiled with since. Yeah, yeah, man. They let all the cameras into the, 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 the studio for the Black Album. Right. These So What magazines, if you guys haven't checked them out, I mean, they're just filled with amazing conversations with the band insights into the band little editorials lars doing articles finding out what they're listening to and what they're doing yeah it's just such an amazing thing and then of course there's the book that many of us own Mm -hmm. the the so what book which is a compilation of a lot of their uh the so what articles called the good the mad and the ugly that's right so Stefan sat down with us, and man, we, I mean, did we talk about everything? I think we talked about it all. We talked about a lot of stuff. We kind of, we all, in a way went, we went chronological um, from his, yeah. you know, kind of his beginnings in, in covering the band until present day. And man, he's such a good dude and had uh, not only a wealth of information about the band, but I really feel like he is this, uh, he's, you know, he, he's like the lone reporter for the band. He's the storyteller, you know, the, outside of the guys in the band that we get to hear from a lot. Um, and have for decades at this point. You know, he's he's a, a crucial part of the Metallica family. Did you think it was weird that he did the whole interview in the nude? I didn't. I know. I felt comfortable with that. I mean, listen, I'm not wearing clothes right now, so it's fine. <laughs> uh, you guys are going to love getting to know Stefan, and uh, we certainly did. So let's just, we're not going to do emails. We're just going to knock out a little bit of housekeeping. If you like the show, honey, please leave the iTunes review. Oh, it's really please. easy to do. You can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Metal Up Your Podcast. You get a bunch of stuff over there. Cover our black and EPs, bonus stuff from Ethan, some Lunar Satan demos. Yep. Even more stuff that I, honestly, that I can't remember. Quarantine covers. And two a lot entire of albums of quarantine covers. Uh, you get access to uh, our Zoom meetups that we do occasionally. Yeah. And you get to ask uh, guests like Stefan. We didn't do it with Stefan, but usually when we have a guest like him, you get to ask them questions. So right, exactly. 
you know, if you think the show has value, which I do, I think the show has value, Ethan. I, you know, I think it does. If you think the show has value, that's a, a, just a great way to support the show. People say all the time, all over the world, that they'd love to buy me and you a beer for the hundreds of hours of metallic entertainment we provided. Mm -hmm. This is just a way for you to do it. And especially in a time where touring is just not happening, right. you know, it's, it's support that Ethan and I have come to depend on. So we appreciate it, the consideration to all past and present and future patrons. Thank you so much. We did start a new thing this week that I want to let everyone know about. It's a Discord server, which I didn't really even know what that was. But here's what it is. We have our own Metal Up Your Podcast Discord server. You can find the links to it on all of our socials over the last week. And it's basically like a, a message board for Metal Up Your Podcast. There are different chat rooms. So you're just chatting. I think there's over 120, 130 active users on it. Yep. And you can dip in whenever you want. And there are Metal Up Your Podcast family from all over the world on it 24 7 it's awesome i man. mean I, I peeked in there this morning like super early and everyone's talking about what they're eating for breakfast so yeah oh, oh you mean on and on namarda's kitchen in namarda's kitchen yeah so <laughs> you know there there are different pages for music sports food films mixtapes uh, there's a mixtapes thread there's a patreon thread there's a, a current episode thread where people are just talking about current metal up your podcast episodes live metallica bootlegs vinyl it's just a really cool place for you to get connected with other Metal Up Your Podcast family. So, yeah. again, we're on all the socials. You know what they are. Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook, all the things that suck your, your the very soul that you have, that God gave you. These things suck them out and kill them. However, we need you to follow us on all of the platforms. <laughs> That's right. And go check out the Discord server. The last thing we'll say before we get into this interview is the Lunar Satan Project is like 165% funded. Yay. That's awesome. Heck yeah. There's about five days left, so you need to get in on that. Now you're just pre-ordering the vinyl. So here's what you're getting. Because I, I added, I'm put, I'm actually giving out a 12-song LP of just my stuff, Clint Well stuff called yeah. Vampire. So you're going to get the Lunar Satan record. The digital download drops on Christmas Eve. Hail Satan. Uh, you're going to get the vinyl, the cassette tape. You're going to digital download of my album, Vampire. And you're going to get a sticker. I have some stretch goals where I, we get a sticker now, and the vinyl is going to be able to be pressed on blood, red, translucent, swirl. Yeah, and I'm happy for you. I'm really excited. Thank you, dude. I'm really stoked, and thank you to everyone who supported Lunar Satan. And our mixtapes are out in the wild, too. We've started a mixtape club. That's right. I forgot to mention this. So volume one of the Metal Up Your Podcast mixtape has, has gone international already, I think. I think it's went to Texas. Now it's going to Australia. And Amazing. there's about 30 people signed up, and we're going to send out volume two, which is your mixtape, January. Yep. I'll be doing that in January, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm feeling some pressure, but I'm pretty excited about it. I got my blank tapes in the mail today, so You know, we were thinking, how can we make Metal Up Your Podcast more relevant, you know, like get more with the times? And I thought, well, mm -hmm. what better way to do that than to make a goddamn mixtape? That's right. Well, people talk about they drop their new mixtape or whatever, and it's just a digital list. That's of not a mixtape. That's exactly, honey. Even Lucius knows what a mixtape is, honey. But uh, no, these are actual analog mixtapes we're making. So I'm looking forward to making mine and sending it out into the world and see where it, see where it goes and where it travels. So if you want to be part of an underground tape trading community, that's another perk you get over at Patreon. I'm telling you, we <laughs> give away so many things over there, I can't even remember them. Um, well, without further ado, I would like for everyone to meet Stefan. And so let's do that. Let's introduce our listeners out there to uh, this lovely dude. Master! Master! I can't talk about it anymore. It's giving me a headache. Here, take two of these. Ah, new print. Little. Yellow. Different. Well, we are here with Stefan, who has carved out time from his busy schedule to sit with us 
<laughs> Got it wrong already. It's already a massive fail. Yeah, we already uh, failed, right? Don't sound posh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen. Clint came from a grammar school somewhere in Southeast End, so he can't say Stefan. He can just say Stefan. Yeah, pardon me, Stefan. Do you have any Grey Poupon, by the way? <laughs> I was wondering if you had any Grey Poupon. That's what this whole interview is about. So thank you for taking the time. It really does mean a lot to us. Um, you know, one of the first things I wanted to ask you is in the world of Metallica, those guys, I think it has a lot to do with the access that they've given fans for so long, but they have a very crazy fan base. Me and Ethan are part of it. And in the Metallica fan base, someone like you is a well-known person. And I don't know how many bands have that, but <clears throat> when we let some of our listeners know that you might be on the show, no one even asked who you were. They were just all super excited to hear from you. Are you aware that you're one of these people to so many Metallica fans? Bluntly speaking, I have become aware of it. Um, it is something that uh, I've been pretty uncomfortable with for a long, long time because, you know, uh, let's let's face it, uh, none of this is really remotely about me. It isn't. I'm a cipher at best, uh, you know, for, for what people should be uh, interested in and knowing about. So there is a certain discomfort in it, to be honest. And uh, what, it, what it does make me realize is uh, the for mental strength and fortitude you need if you really are famous. I mean, that must be just uh, just such an absolute mind mindfuck, you know, if you really are huge. And, and, you know, woe betide anyone gets mega famous in their late teens, early 20s. It's just not, it, it, it's just mentally unacceptable, really. Well, I can fill you in on what it's like a little later if you... <clears throat> yes, after. no, no. I'd no, be happy no, to yeah. tell you what a life of celebrity is actually like from personal experience, of course, but... And I appreciate that and <laughs> I will take any uh, lessons I can get, you know. <laughs> Um, being that I am, you know, getting into the world of, you know, F-less celebrities at the age of 53, I could probably do with any advice I can get. No, but it, to answer your question seriously, it would be, I think it would be disingenuous to say I'm unaware that, you know, there are people in, in the fan base who know who I am. But I can tell you equally, I am extremely humbled and appreciative, appreciative whenever anyone says they know who I am. Hmm. And I would imagine, too, that... that uh people starting to recognize you and, and, and know who you are in that Metallica world. Obviously that probably didn't really start happening until like the age of the internet. And especially in the last 20 years where that is really exploded, where, where fans have even more access to find out about people and little details about the band and stuff like that, where before it was almost like, you know, you're writing about the band and your name's just kind of right there at the beginning or the end and stuff like that. So, but now with all this information we have, you, you can't escape it. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, in fairness, I don't think, I'm alone in that. I think there are other people who work in, in, in the camp as well who are also well known. I mean, you know, you, I, I think the, I think you know, fans are fans, and I think much like, I suppose, much like the way the Grateful Dead operate as well. There, you know, when you get into that level of, of, of appreciation of your favorite band, you tend to pay attention to maybe some of the older heads around them. Mm -hmm. Big Mick Hughes, for example, sound man. I don't think Mick can walk through a crowd without you know, people saying hello. And I think it's just very nice. I mean, isn't it pleasant? I mean, it's great yeah. for people to say hello. I, but what's interesting is I used to be intimidated by it and quite shy about it and sort of shy away from it and sort of not really know what to say. And uh, really all you have to say is, hey, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Yeah, and I think that's what it comes from. I think it comes from a, genu a, a genuine appreciation for how you guys help the machine feed the Metallica to us. For those people who may not know what you do, could you describe just kind of briefly what your what your role is with the band? 
I am the writer and one of the uh, picture takers, photographers, if you will, for So What magazine, which is the band's own publication. That's my role. It's very simple. It's very direct. I would say that the photography side of things, in my case, came about simply due to the fact I had access. And it seemed churlish not to take advantage of that by snapping some shots here and there. And, you know, that's uh, kind of taken on its own thing. I mean, we have... We have several, you know, really, really strong photographers already. You know, you've got Jeff Yeager, Brett Murray, um, and obviously the uh, the mighty Ross Halfin, who's probably the best live photographer in, in rock and roll, bar, bar none. Never heard also, of him. Also a man with like, <laughs> pr- pr- you know, with nine lives, because how can he, be, you know, it's like every cool gig in the world, he was there taking pictures. I don't know how the man has any time. I know. You know, he is a force of nature, and, and, and he is that because when you want great, great pictures yeah and especially in the live setting he is he's right there going back to your question 20 years of doing that on staff um and i you know was writing about these guys uh since 1984 in a freelance capacity so we spent a lot of time together i was perusing the so what book which i definitely want to talk about you and i had a phone conversation a few days ago that i think i think started as me and you just having a quick chat to to get orientated and then it turned into an hour of I think we solved all the geopolitical problems in the world. If not all of them, maybe 95% of them. You can ask anyone in our organization about a phone call with me, and I would suggest that half of them are politely tell you that they try and avoid <laughs> them because it does turn into a bit of a natter. So, yeah. Well, I was telling you about how much I love I love the book. I love the magazine. I've been reading it, it seems like, my whole life almost. And uh, But, yeah, you started in 84, and I was revisiting the book, and you're for the first you know, article you wrote about the band is in there. And it struck me the thread, you know, of your voice kind of that I've been reading was all there all the way at the beginning. You know, I mean, it's so interesting. And it was for Sounds Magazine. Is that correct? It was. It was uh, just to not to hijack your question, um, but just to give you a brief bit of uh, history behind that. You know, the first piece I ever did for anyone with any musician of any note uh, was with Lemmy for my school magazine in 1982. Um, So that was the first printed piece uh, I ever did. I I, I got paid absolutely nothing for it. Obviously, it was a school, it was a school magazine. It was, you know, A4 paper, a photocopier stapled together for a readership of about 12. I don't know, something like that. But I was in the studio with Lemmy for for the whole evening. Um, Lemmy and Filthy, it was brilliant. I mean, he was so, so cool. Um, this is when they were making another perfect day, and it was all as the result of me writing uh, a very, you know, erudite, maybe somewhat cheeky letter to the management, you know, in my persnickety 13 year old voice, you know, would let me do an interview with my school magazine? And <laughs> I got back a reply of yes. Lem gave me a vodka and orange, he gave me a volume button, he <laughs> gave me his time, gave me his appreciation and respect. I think what really struck me, and I've not said this before about this that encounter, was he showed such enormous respect for this 13-year-old oik in a motorhead shirt. It's like he knew I was a super fan. I mean, he got it. But he he gave me time and respect as someone doing a story. And I, I think subconsciously that must have really had a major effect on me, yeah. to be honest. Such a simple gesture for him. And it's something that you, something that may have set the course for your whole career. Absolutely. I mean, look, we'd had the No Life to Leather demo tape in my in my town, Kingston, Kingston, Surbiton uh, area of Surrey. There, we'd we'd had that tape circulating through um, 
uh, a friend of uh, ours, Noel Jones, who's uh, the local heavy metal tape dude. And so we knew that we knew the tape. Uh, in 1983, soon after I'd done this school magazine interview with Lemmy, I went to a festival in Dublin where Motorhead were playing with Black Sabbath. Um, Len gave me uh, an infamous one-arm hug and thanked me for this extremely obsequious piece I wrote in defense of another perfect day for Sounds Magazine, where I'd bullshitted myself into an intern. Uh, I talked my way into it, uh, and, and, and somehow it had all happened, and they were all very happy. So, you know, I'm coming back from that trip. It's 24 hours, I think, you know, between ferries and coaches and everything, and I've thrown up on myself a couple of times, as you do at that age, uh, you know, and I remember struggling up the steps to my flat, where I lived with my parents, obviously, at the time, and there was a brown envelope on the door, and it was the first free album I ever got from any record label, uh, because Music Foundations knew that I was a sounds intern, you know, they were like, well, I will send him, he's a heavy metal guy. I opened it up, it was, uh, it was Kill em All. Wow. So it was like, ah. Oh. And so then fast forward like eight months and I got a letter out of the blue from someone at Sounds saying, you know, we're looking for a heavy metal freelance writer. Do you want it? Do you want to be that? Which is 16 years old. I was like, uh, yes, I fucking yep. do. <laughs> and they said, do you have any suggestions for reviews? I said, yeah, well, Ride the Lightning is coming out. I said, you know, we should review that record. <clears throat> and so that was my first ever printed paid. Piece. Wow. It's the first piece I got money for was, was my sounds ride the lightning review at 16 years old wow yeah and then i ended up on a plane going to paris um i'd never been on an airplane before uh as we came into land in paris i asked the photographer i was with pete cronin if we were stopping for petrol which is quite cute and uh, <laughs> i mean i was so naive and then <clears throat> and just to frame i went to paris to do that first metallica story for sounds and, and this is also a bizarre memory, and then you'll have to you you might have to dive in and cut me off at some point. <laughs> you go on a tangent. I'm interested. But I will tell you this: we jumped out of the transit van. I was with the guys at Music for Nations, and I saw this bloke in a denim denim suit. It looked like uh, with with long red hair, sort of like arguing. I'm like, that's Chris Burton. I'm like what you know? And he was outside the perimeter fence arguing with the security guy. And we got closer, and it was clear that Cliff had forgotten his pass. And so we came in, like three or four of us, and I just shouted at the security guy. I'm like, don't you know he's in Metallica? Like, you know, he's in the band, blah, 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 blah. And we waved our passes, and the guy's like, oh, I'll wave him in. Cliff <laughs> just looks at me, he goes, cool, dude. <laughs> <laughs> was that the Seven Days of Hell tour that they were on? Uh, I don't remember what tour it was on. It was a festival. It's Breaking Wind, okay. as we called it, Breaking Sound, uh, 1984. I don't think it was part of that Seven Days of Hell, though. I think it was... Um, I think it was just a straight-up festival appearance. I know that Ozzy and Dio were on the same bill, and I do remember that... <laughs> I remember the hotel we were in, the Novotel, and I remember looking down the end of my corridor and seeing a figure shuffling around on all fours, and I was later informed that that was Oz <laughs> uh, in the middle of his time when he was going into crew members' rooms and shaving an eyebrow off. <laughs> wow. Oh my God. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So anyway, so. Well, it strikes me that even in that first article, I mean, the, the, the things that we've talked about a lot on this podcast <clears throat> are how, like, even with Ride the Lightning, they were already sort of moving away from a genre they invented. Uh, it was so interesting to see that that conversation playing out where it seems like you as you know the journalist you're like 
they're distancing themselves from thrash and you're kind of like in the article like yeah but you guys invented it what do you mean you know <laughs> it's interesting to see that that's there and to see that one of the things that you really bring out of them from that time you were with them is how unpretentious they were in the beginning it's just interesting to see oh. those threads that have <laughs> carried through all these years you know especially with cliff oh uh, wow wow look i mean and this is something that's very important for people i think to recognize especially with respects to mars mars is no different to how he's ever been he's always been curious enthusiastic relentless driven you know all of those things he's always been that i mean he is he's the biggest fan of rock music maybe there's my good friend dave fraser who is incidentally everyone dave fraser is not famous but he should be uh who actually just had a heart transplant i'm sure he won't mind me mentioning that but he is uh, fucking up and running uh, like a, like a marathon i'm good for him that's good. great for you, Dave, and he's yeah. the person I know who loves music uh, in this, that I can talk about music with in that way. It is him. But Lars, you can go to the races talking about music with him, and you could do it back then. He's always had that energy, and he's always been that person. I loved hearing his uh, "It's Electric" show where you would be on, and you guys were just trading. Would you guys used to like look through your iPods and stuff, right, on that show, and just talk music? That was just a snapshot. Yeah, I think of of of, of how. Yeah, I mean, it was a snapshot of that. That's what it is. And that's really who he is, you know, as well. And I, I think, you know, the people, I think it's important to note that. But to your point, yes, Cliff, I mean, Cliff, I mean, yeah, I don't think Cliff was unpretentious by design. He was just Cliff. Yeah. And he's the dude who introduced you to sort of your first group of buddies when you moved to the Bay Area, right? Yes, he did. Uh, so he told, I ran into him in 1980 in uh yeah mid 85 i think i not long back from being in la to do a master of puppets story it sounds and he said oh you're moving he said you're moving to the states i told him i was moving and he said here's my number call me and we'll hang out and i was like oh okay well, great you know being someone who takes people at their word i i, I did call him and I, I i didn't actually really think he was gonna maybe show up i didn't know but <laughs> But he was, yeah, he was absolutely, uh, he was right in there. Several times he came into the city um, and he would bring, you know, the likes of Jim Martin with him, um, who's become, you know, uh, like, like a family member in, uh, to me, you know, and so on. You know, he introduced me to Faith No More as a band. Mm -hmm. uh, he bought me to see Faith No More because uh, Jim, obviously, really good friend and so is Mike Borden. And he just said to me, he said, look, if you like this band, he said, you know, maybe you can help him out and i do remember what you said to jim <laughs> he said to jim he introduced me he said this is my friend from england stefan he's moving here he's a journalist but he's cool <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> love that you can trust him even though he's a you know what do they say in almost famous the enemy they call him yeah so you know in many ways and i didn't talk about cliff stuff for many years it took um it actually took a member of the metallica team um, the webmaster, uh, the uh, the content webmaster, uh, Dan uh, Nicolaito had to uh, sort of tell us around Master of Puppets. He suggested to a bunch of us, like, why do you never, why do you guys never talk about Cliff? Like, people want to know. Mm -hmm. And and he was absolutely right. And it was actually down to probably a little bit of shyness. I mean, I, you know, for the band, they had their own reasons for not talking for a long time about it. Yeah. But for me, it was we knew each other for a relatively short amount of time, but. As I said at that anniversary at the Fillmore, you know, the length of time that we knew each other might not have been huge, but the interactions and their subsequent impact on my life were enormous. 
yeah. something absolutely un- unfathomably huge. If you don't have friends, you may not settle. Yeah. You know, and I can tell you that with friends like Jim, you know, these people are loyal to the core and, 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 you know, it was, it was great to have that. Yeah. I mean, to get an endorsement, basically an endorsement from Cliff Burton. Cause I, I think what you told me was he introduced you to a little core and then he split, you know, he had to go work. Yeah. And if he hadn't have made that time for you and kind of <clears throat> carved a little path for yes. you, you know, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And it's interesting to me to watch the legend of, of Cliff grow as it has, um, because it's, it's sort of tough. It's tough to fathom him as that, as this legend, you know, he's just, I mean, my experience, he's just Cliff. I mean, you know, and I, obviously I think that what he did musically uh, for the band was huge, you know, but mm-hmm, I yeah. mean, I'm, I'm very happy that he's appreciated and that, uh, you know, and, and that he's respected. But I can tell you that back at that time, if he'd have received this level of veneration, he would have been utterly uncomfortable. And <laughs> yeah. I don't know if he would have been pissed off, but he would have been just like, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> right. Wasn't his vibe. Yeah, yeah. So you're in San Francisco. Cliff's introduced you to the Faith No More camp a little bit. I mean, you, a lot of people don't know about your work with maybe with, with Motorhead or about Faith No More, the stuff that you've been doing, but you got pretty involved with the Faith No More stuff at that time, right? mid late eighties. Yeah. I got really involved with them at the beginning. I mean, I, you know, again, I think I was, if not the first, one of the first journalists to write about them in England. I definitely was the first to get them. Uh, I think, yeah, I think Kerrang did the first piece on them and I was, yeah. And I became, I mean, the great thing about writing for Kerrang back then was that, you know, you were able to fly flags for causes that you believed in. And I think there's a very important differential to add here because we're in an era right now where everyone is always looking for proof of some sort of like unhealthy collusion. You know, like if you say that you like something these days, immediately everyone's like, well, who's paid you to say that? You know, there's that right. kind of vibe. You know, I think it's important to remember that for, for me with Face No More, I mean, yeah, I I waxed lyrical about them. I probably alliterated way too much. I probably used, you know, uh, an extra cheesy adjective or five uh, in everything I wrote and was possibly, you know, uh, enthusiastic to the point of suspicion. But I played the shit out of their music and I loved them. And I saw it as, I was like, it felt like a mission. It's like, I have to let people know. So the enthusiasm was pure, 100%. And so, yeah. I wrote as much about them as I could because I believed in them. That's a bit of a natural, uh, you know, act when you're such a big music fan and, and feel so passionately about a band is do you want to just tell everybody? And thankfully, in your case, you know, you're, you're penning all this down, you know, and, and that's, that's, that's your extra voice into the world of, of waving that flag for a band like Faith No More. Yeah, I think it's also, um, when I think back on it, the style of writing back then was very much informed by uh, writers who preceded me, uh, like, like Gary Bushels, um, you know, even the Nick Kent's of this world, Charles Shaw Murray's, like, you know, really, Pete Mikowski's, Giovanni De Domo's, there's a, there's a list of Lester Bangs's, you know, legendary writers who were also not afraid to lead me to things that I needed to know. And so I would trust these voices. And I trusted them. And even if I sometimes hated what they led me to, that was worth the journey because I knew that at least they meant it. And so for me, that was always a really important thing. It's like, you know, it, it's, it's, it's about us, not me. Mm-hmm. But the only way to make it that way is for me to really kind of almost shove it down your throat. 
in a written sense and show you that I really do like this shirt, you know? So at that time, were you also sort of ingrained in the, I mean, it's sort of legendary. I'm thinking about like Ruthie Zen type spastic children gigs. Were you a part of that whole scene? Uh, I missed Ruthie Zen uh, by uh, probably about a half a year or a year because I moved in 1986 and Ruthie Zen was pretty much at its end at that point. I did see a spastic children show, um, <laughs> you know, but I'd be lying to you if I told you that I was like into the legend of spastic children. I mean, I saw the gig because it was across the street from the stone at the on Broadway. Um, it was funny. It was a good laugh. Yeah. But I mean, it, it was it was what it was. It was a bunch of guys goofing around and having fun. But I wouldn't say that it, I wouldn't say it, <laughs> I wouldn't say it made a particularly huge note uh, mark on me uh, <laughs> a, a cultural event of great significance. Right. <laughs> I've never so, even heard it. To your point, I think it's really interesting that that has also become legendary. But that's what happens, isn't it? Yeah. Every aspect of a band's, uh, you know, past history. I think that past. time in particular, too. I mean, 86, they're opening for Ozzy. It almost seems like before shit got really crazy for them. So I think that's that's that time is kind of in a weird capsule for a lot of people. Yeah, possible. Yeah. When did you start working for the band? Officially, in terms of... They offering me a post. Yeah, uh, uh, that was 1999. But I started writing for So What magazine as a freelancer, pretty much in the first issue. So I freelanced those early issues. Uh, Tony Smith, who was the tour manager at the time, uh, and started the first Metallica fan club uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee, where he was based. Um, he was the editor, and he just he came to me and asked if I would, you know, uh, basically do pieces so he would hire me as a freelancer for, for, for several issues and then when he uh when he left the fold uh in 1999 uh, i was asked if i would join if i wanted to join as the as the you know, on payroll if you will salary yeah. and and uh, of course i gratefully accepted yeah i mean it seems like you had to have been such a big part of how it grew into what it was too i mean we were talking on the phone about I just don't know any other band that has anything like it. I mean, in terms of the access, I mean, the access to the band, even going through the So What book last night was like, it's almost embarrassing. And, and I mean that as a compliment. I mean, it's almost like, should I be reading this? And <laughs> when I think about bands that I adore that are, you know, on the same level, like Pink Floyd or Radiohead or Tool, these are bands that almost fetishize not giving anyone access. They almost hate their fans or something. You know what I'm saying? So to have this weird window into Metallica is, is just amazing. This, I, I consider the So What magazine like a treasure if you're a Metallica fan. Absolutely, yeah. Hey, well, thanks. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think to, to address the core of your question or point, I know it wasn't a question, adjust your earpieces, everybody. This is the sound of a name dropping somewhere. <laughs> it could be deafening. Some of the conversations I had with Kurt Cobain over a few years, he, told, he basically pot-boiled it down for me and said, the reason that I don't like doing interviews and the reason I'm maybe not great at doing interviews is because I never cared what my favorite musicians had to say. That was never in my lexicon. It was never anything I gave a shit about. So I conversely uh, or, or don't care either. I, I, don't, mm. I have no, you know, so it's very hard for me to enjoy interviews. That was what he said. Um, mm. And I would suspect that's probably the same with Pink Floyd, although I wouldn't know. Um, it's actually one of the few bands uh, that I've never interviewed any any of the members, and I, oh. I would love to. Love, I'd love to have a, love to have done that, especially with Dave Gilmore. I could tell in the uh, when you interviewed Kirk about doing the Peter Green tribute. 
I could tell that you were more excited about David Gilmore than he was. Like I was like resonating with that because you were like, you're like, wait a minute though. You were near David Gilmore and you know, Kirk Hammett, who's also a guitar God is like, yeah, it was cool. You know? And you were like, but wait a minute. And I, I, I resonated with that too, because I'm a massive, massive Pink Floyd fan, but Gilmore's the greatest, but, but I think that to get to the point of, of why Metallica's access to fans is so huge. I think again, we, we, we have to go back to Lars who fully, fully comprehends and understands what it is to be a fan on the micro level. Yeah. Um, and that's because he's a fan on a micro level. It's almost like when he would, fo- he would follow motorheads bus, right? Those are the stories of where he would follow them on tour. Absolutely. And it's like, I can see him being in that car by himself, probably listening to fucking motorhead while he's following them and thinking if I'm ever on that bus and the bus being a symbol for whatever he had in his head, if I'm ever that guy, I'm going to make guys like me real happy with my, with yeah, access. Ab- absolutely. And actually, yeah. uh, you know, he would have been in, uh, when he drove to those gigs, he was with uh, an old friend of, of the scenes called Skitchy, hmm. Rich, uh, Rich Birch. Um, and, and I think that's also another important part of it is Lars has always, you know, look, Lars has always enjoyed the gathering of people. Like he enjoy, you know, he likes people. He's just a very social person and he enjoys being around people and he enjoys having a laugh and having a good time and he enjoys, loves music. And so this is all an extension of that. I mean, as corny as this is going to sound, you know, I, nobody's working harder to make Metallica seem accessible to you than him. Yeah. I mean, anything mm-hmm. we do, is is you know by by virtue of, of 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 his vision and obviously obviously that takes James and, and and Kirk and Rob and they're all a very important and signed up part of it but you know the heartbeat of, of the heartbeat of it that, that would come from Lars and I don't think anybody else would deny it. Yeah, our our we're coming up on four years of our podcast now, and I think Ethan, you could vouch for this. It's safe to say that a lot of our podcast is a love letter to Lars for those very reasons, you know, for those very right reasons. Now. So the first roundtable interview you did, I reread that last night. These are now famous that you do now. Now fans look forward to these every year. So we're going back to this first one you did in 96, which just, it's it struck me last night how much it set the tone, especially for post uh, rehab kinds of conversations that we've been privy to with Metallica. But I mean, it's like the first time and it's definitely you dragging it out of them, but it's like the first time they, it's, they're such an interesting band because it's like the first time they ever even had some of these conversations about how they feel about each other, you know? Uh, it, struck, it struck me as courageous. I mean, what? how did you go into that thinking, I'm just going to lead off with asking them what they don't like about each other? <laughs> uh, one of the things that I have to say is so important is that never have I been with a group of people who are so utterly supportive and hands off of what you do. And in my case, that means letting me do what I feel is necessary to bring out the best or worst or information, whatever from them for, for fans. Right. Hmm. So they leave me alone, you know, to do it. They've always done it at that time. As I remember, I was very hot on the fact that, because I had this position of access and privilege. Remember, I was not on the salary at the time. I was still being hired as a freelancer. And I'd always, I've always felt that just because you are friendly with people, it does not mean that you, you know, take the soft line. You know, if there's a line to be taken that is hard, you probably have a better pathway to do it, you know. And mm-hmm. one very important thing with them is they always knew about me 
<clears throat> this is a uh, I I consider this a hallmark of my career, and I we said it before, but it's worth saying here. I'm not interested in in cheap in cheap cheap shit. I'm not interested in in who's you know doing what, who's snorting what, whatever. That 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 to me is a sideshow. It's an irrelevance. It's cheap gossip. It's a, it's a, it's now what I would call an instant hit. It's a tweet, right? That's what it would have mm-hmm. been back in the old days. I am not interested in that. I never was. Uh, I was interested in what was behind the things, the relationships. Yeah. Relationships are not all happy. They can't be. And great music and great art or whatever doesn't come from everyone sitting around in a permanent state of happiness. It can't. As a matter of fact, some of the best art comes from strife, right? I mean, this is not rocket science everyone right. knows so i had said to them that i felt it would be a really great idea to to kind of get into that more and like you know what about we all sit around and just see what happens yeah and that they agreed knowing obviously that i was not going to sell them out you know that this was going to be what it said on the tin it was going to be a conversation and i don't really remember I don't remember exactly. I have to. I haven't read it for a long time. What I mm. do remember is that it was spicy. Yeah. And I remember. I've. I, I mean, I've. I've never been afraid to ask a question around them. Never. I mean, if you do that, if if you have that sort of fear around them, you're not going to get anywhere. I mean, they would be most disinterested. There's <laughs> a point. There's a point in the interview where you ask them about publishing, like details about. You actually ask them. <laughs> I love this part. <laughs> Stefan, I love this so much where you asked, you basically said to Kirk and Jason, does it bum you guys out that you don't get as much publishing? <laughs> and, then, and then you wrote, in, it was parenthetical and it said, James looks physically disgusted that I have asked this question. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's just amazing to read. And then what I love about it though, is like you even go after James and you say, hey, what is it about this question that makes you uncomfortable? It's like, it's just amazing that you got away with it. And it actually says a lot about how much they must have trusted you at the time because it's right, it's real yeah. clear, maybe maybe James a little less so than Lars, but it's real clear that Jason and Lars are really digging the opening up because I don't think they had a lot of opportunity, especially, I, I mean, Cliff passing away almost cauterized something in them. And I just don't think they ever had that kind of talk. I mean, it would foreshadow all the stuff with Phil later, but it's... You know, you're like the pre-fill, dude. You're the pre-fill towel. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting that, uh, that you know, first of all, um, thank you for that dubious honor. But, uh, <laughs> well, actually, no, one thing to say about Phil Toll at this juncture is whatever anyone says about Phil Toll, and much has been said, I do think, and this is, this is really the only thing I'm going to say about Phil, for nine months of his work with that band was absolutely vital. And I do believe that that nine month, maybe 11, 12 months of his stretched spell, I believe that without his help, this band would not have made it through. You can, you know, theorize whether X amount of other people might have been able to say the same things to them, whatever about that. His was the voice that they trusted and needed to hear in that context at that time. And I think it was very, very, very important. So. You know, we've all had a we've all had a poke at Phil Sweaters and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. Perhaps the relationship um, became a little weird uh, after a certain time, but I do think it's important that you know 
Phil did some very, very good work. Yeah, he deserves the credit for sure. He does deserve the credit for, for that time, you know. And I can I, look, I can hear people right now rolling their eyes. Oh, fuck this. You know, <laughs> anyone who does that is someone who doesn't fully understand and grasp the nature of what was necessary at that time. And that's okay. Yeah. You don't yeah. have to grasp it. You just have to accept it. And you just have to accept it when I say that I really do believe this band might have had a much harder time being around without his intervention. Well, right, yeah. Presumably you you were around for much of that. And yes, absolutely. Do you think the do you think the documentary um is accurate? Do you think the documentary captured yes. the story? Yes. It does seem like it did to me. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And 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 again, I think that documentary is brilliant. Yeah. I think it's I I mean I I think there's only one other rock documentary I've seen that gets close to it, and that's one called Dig, which was about Dandy Warhols versus the Brian Jonestown massacre, which you've mm. never seen that. It's great, great documentary, but but no, I thought this was I thought this was uh, revolutionary, and, and actually, I think a lot of the reasons that people don't like it are because it makes them very uncomfortable as to the what they're not prepared to go through. Um, and you know, some people are very private, and some people feel that that shouldn't be shared, um, and I understand that too. But I think if you look at the model of this band, which is we're all in this together, uh, fans, band, everyone. I felt it was a very logical extension of that mindset. And I mm-hmm. felt it was extremely honest to share that, uh, what they did with the fans. I don't think anyone, um, I don't think anyone could say it was whitewashed in any way. I think there's some extremely uncomfortable things in that film. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't talked to Lars about it for some time, but I'm sure there are places that he looks and is uncomfortable, you know, when you look back and maybe James too, I haven't talked to him about it, but I think everyone would agree that it was very, very, important uh, for it to come out when it did and i i think it stands uh, stands as a really great honest document of the time I, mm-hmm. I do think that. but going back to your point about the round table in 96 and opening up and you, you did say something about james and and you know yeah i think james you know i remember making a breakthrough with james doing interviews uh somewhere around the end of the justice tour we did a really big interview for Kerrang, and I really felt he's starting to open up um, more, um, you know, and it's, it's tough sometimes because you don't want to be the person, you, you don't want to always psych someone, right? That's, but by the same token, I think we would all agree that you're looking at probably someone who's definitely on par with, with Springsteen in terms of his cultural touchstone with millions of people i mean absolutely i i think he's beatles level songwriter yes. <clears throat> in terms of yeah, in terms I, of heavy metal and hard rock i would mm-hmm. go as far as to say uh, uh that you know lyrically he's written lyrics that are as resonant with you know his audience as, as dylan did with his i, I know, totally obviously. agree yeah, yeah, yeah totally. i mean obviously you know I, I don't someone will pop up and say what metal militia it's like uh, well yeah dig a bit deeper you know, well, but, but but for every metal militia hit the lights, for every we're going to kick brilliant. some ass tonight. There's the Unforgiven, and there's you know, uh, oh. Mama said, and where the wild things are, and etc. So right, and bleeding me, and, and things like that, which are sleeps, just yeah. so so so. Uh, you know, he's just he's just. I mean, he literally is bloodletting on the page, and so. What do you attribute this breakthrough this around the justice era? What do you attribute that to? Trust. Yeah, because you'd been around, right? I think at that point. You know, there was finally a level of trust establishing. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that also as the years have gone on, um, you know, 
I think there's a trust and appreciation for, for, for you know, the relationship, the professional relationship. We also have, yeah, we're also buddies. Um, but I think, you know, I think very much the professional relationship is about trust and as it should be. I mean, he shouldn't give that away for cheap. I mean, yeah. he's a, you have to protect that. And I understand and he should protect it. Mm-hmm. But I do think equally it was always, you know, my, my thing to, to help to help him maybe express certain things to the fans that they might not have seen and to help the fans understand certain things that maybe they weren't seeing in the lyrics. And, and you know, the great thing with this journey with him is that you're, I'm still learning things that I didn't know. You know, there's still things that, that you know, I mean, he said something in an interview. Um, there was something about around the time of Ride the Lightning, I think it was, or, uh, was it, or was it Puppets? It was Puppets. And he was in a hospital visiting a friend and he said something to me like, and I remember looking at, there was a ward that was like basically a psych ward. He said, I remember being scared I was going to end up on it. Hmm. I I had no idea. I never knew that. You know, and that was just a couple of years ago. I mean, it's in one of the interviews. He wrote it. Um, But there's, you know, there's forever layers layers to to James's relationship with his life and his work and and I just think he's I just I just think he's whether he likes it or not and I think you know that's something only he can answer he's this is what he's here to do I I really I do believe that I Mm -hmm. he speaks to so many people I mean I'd love to know and it's something I might consider doing down the line if we can editorialize I'd love to know how many people's lives have been changed for the positive by his lyrics because that's a relationship that always fascinates me with musicians and their fans in general pick any band we've all had that relationship with musicians where some music you could read those lyrics and they would change your life read some of the stuff james has written i mean he made it cool to admit depression and anxiety Mm -hmm. and security i mean you think of how tough guys are out there that would never have got there without i I was just about to say i I think that starts with fade to black for him lyrically I think the jump to that from Kill 'Em All is so crazy, <clears throat> and then of course with disposable heroes and and sort of advocating for a certain group of people, kind of the anti-drug message of puppets, that probably helped a, a shitload of people. And then I I really think it's interesting that you see a delineation between like you almost divide it between pre and post justice because the, to me the '90s, I'm 37, so the '90s era is such a huge part for me. Load and reload in particular. And, that's arguably that in St. Anger is when he was writing the most personal stuff. Uh, I would have to uh, interject and say that I think Justice is when it really dire, The Dire Z type stuff, yeah. Well, for me, Harvester of Sorrow is such a massive, massive, massive song. It's just such a, it's such a visceral and powerful mm-hmm. set of words. And I, one of the things I asked him recently was whether his relationship with these lyrics is the same you know, uh, as it was back then. And, and he said, it's a, he can't quite remember what he said. He said certainly that it shifts. I mean, it shifts from time to time, like, you know, as it would with your life, you know? Right. Yeah. But there's a raw emotion. This whole time it's, I mean, it sounds like you were a fan. It sounds like you were really resonated with the tunes and you were bringing that, that love and respect for the material to your relationship with. It's impossible not to be. I mean, how could you do it if you weren't? I mean, right. I couldn't do it with any degree of, of, I mean, they wouldn't have it. I mean, it wouldn't be, I wouldn't be, let, I mean, yeah, they'd let me in the room, but not all the time. But yes. The one, th- one thing I would tell you about So What that I always wanted it to be, and I hope it comes across as, is a living chronicle of where the band is at any given time in their career. So 
in my mind, it was always like, you know, when we were in print, it was very much in case of, okay, I want to know what's going on in 1996. Uh, so let's look at the four issues that came out in 1996, which is uh, before I came on board. So but, uh, maybe I should go further forward, 1999. <laughs> um, you know, and just like, okay, let's see this as a document of history. Where were they? Who were they? Like you talk about that round table, which, you know, you reread. Mm-hmm. You have a direct snapshot into what was going on at that time. Oh, and yeah. if you look at the context around it, then it starts to make sense. You know, uh, 2001, 2002, same thing. So at any given time, I hope that's what it does. And, and you know, uh, it, it, it should be a living, a, a living documentary almost. Well, even know? seeing like what they were listening to, what movies they were watching. Um, yeah. What was your relationship with Jason like? Great. Jason was brilliant. Really good guy. Like, really good guy. Really solid. Utterly dependable. Uh, always never flinched at anything. Yeah, he was super cool. I really like Jason. He's kind of a fan favorite for sure. He's he always uh, yeah. he, he's emblematic of the story of the fan. You know, he's the fan who became part of the band. So for so many of us, especially musicians, He's mm-hmm. uh, totemic in a way where he got there. And then when he got there, he was still the fan. You know, it seemed like he was always advocating for the fan and everybody. I think it's fair to say, and I think nobody would disagree. And I think it's been said many times by many people uh, in the band even. And I think that, you know, somewhat timing for Jason was somewhat both fortuitous and unfortunate, both at, at once. You know, as you say, he was a fan who got a shot at this amazing gig. Uh, but by the same token, there were young men grieving there who didn't learn how to grieve properly for at least a decade. In my opinion, that's my mm, opinion. I agree. Um, and and I think that I think that Jason uh, took a lot of that, uh, you know, maybe without knowing. Um, and even if he did know, at times he maybe wouldn't have stood up quite as much simply because he was the new guy. But you know, again, he's another. I mean, what a vital person to come in. I mean, I I don't think at that time anybody else could have done it you know he was the perfect guy because he was young hungry resolute and Mm -hmm. what's interesting is style wise and i've always said this about him you know he's antithetical to to cliff and also to rob in as much as i've always thought of him as a fist he's very solid um in terms of his pick players he's very you know very heavy very you know in metallica sense anyway almost angular i always felt um, whereas Cliff was a river flow, you know. Mm, yeah. And it's interesting because Jason's musical tastes are so so hugely eclectic. I mean, at least they were. I mean, he was, you know, he was talking about jazz before, you know, the the next wave of hipsters came through and started waxing on about it. I mean, he's always mm-hmm. been very, very, you know, African percussion, all of that. I mean, he was into that. He didn't just say it. Uh, reggae, really into reggae. So he's got a great musical palette as well i mean i can never say anything bad about jason because from my perspective there's nothing bad to say when the band was bumming people out i mean i wasn't part of this because i was 13 and so I, I didn't have a um we've talked a lot about this on the show i didn't really have a, a fidelity to puppets or lightning or ch- i wasn't a true or anything like that to me the first thing i ever saw was inner sandman went backwards loved everything everything made sense to me and then with load that was the first album by my favorite band, my, the first new album since I came online, as we say. So yeah. for me, it was just never a problem. It, it all made sense to me. But I do understand that people who came online with Battery 
And then the next thing they see is the guys with guy liner and, you know, the Hieronymus Bosch video <laughs> and the song is slow and they're bummed out and the nipple rings and all that shit. When you were part of that in the camp, what was your take on how the band was evolving? Like b- b- both aesthetically and musically. I feel very, very strongly about this period of their, of their history. Um, I think, first of all, <clears throat> to address the fan response to it, I think some people are less uh, open to change than others in life. I think that happens. Uh, I think some people, when they come across, you know, sourdough bread, that's the only bread they want to eat. Mm-hmm. And if they come home one day and find that there's, you know, a loaf of fucking sprouted whole wheat bread, they're like, what? Fuck you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I totally. you like that. Um, they fear change, I, as they yeah, say. Yeah, but they fear change. And I understand that. I think, uh, I think to understand the load reload period, it's really important to go back to a conversation we were having off air about fame and about how fame can really be a mind blower, you know, can really blow your mind and really just push you into weird spaces. And just remember how utterly huge that band was off the Black Album. I mean, to the point that Kirk went back to SF State and enrolled in State City, you know, SF State College classes to try and get grounded again when he came off tour. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's fascinating to me when people say load and reload was a sellout. Yeah. Mm. Because that's what's thrown at it. Right. Uh, I would think actually selling out would be to sit down and try and write battery again when you don't feel like it. Yeah. That's very key. When you don't feel like it. They did not feel like writing that music at that time. They did not feel like trying to write the second Enter Sandman. I'm sure they got pressure not pressure, but I'm sure they got some hopeful looks. That might be the case. Right. I don't know. But, you know, but they just didn't want to go there. They wanted to to go somewhere else. I mean, I've always felt that it was a reaction. It was such a Metallica thing to do. And yeah, that's very much so. so cool. It was so cool. They did the opposite of what everyone expected. Mm-hmm. And not even because they didn't even design it that way. They just did what they wanted. And what they wanted was to not have to live in the trap of the black album forever mm-hmm, right. that's how i always looked at it that was my take on it. what do you think about the idea that i mean lars has you know made no bones about being a, he was really fascinated with guns and roses at the time <clears throat> where they were going to get mike clink to work on justice and he was wearing the axle he got the axle white jacket and shit i love all that because it just reminds me of me but what do you think about <laughs> them looking at user illusion one and two and thinking we could do that, and I think we could do it better. That's a theory that I've never heard before. Uh, and I, I to look be at honest, me, look at me blowing your honest, mind, dude. <laughs> to be honest, that's the first time that I have ever even contemplated that as a theory. What do you think? I mean, seriously, uh, off the cuff, absolutely not. I think Guns N' Roses fascination was what was over. Yeah, that was 1992. That was it. Hit its peak on the stadium tour. Uh, and it was brutal. It was actually it was tremendous. Um, actually, do you want to hear a funny story that has nothing to do with Metallica, but has everything to do with Guns N' Roses? Yes, please. You'll enjoy this. Yes, okay, all right. So cue the sort of the wobbly screen fading back into 1991, and I'm going to bring you to Rock in Rio, right, in January 1991. And I'm on the side of the stage, and there's Kerrang to report on the whole festival, and Judas Priest are about to play. And I've seen and heard rumor that Rob Halford has been told he can't ride his Harley on stage because Guns N' Roses and Axel have said that he can't do it. 
And I was so utterly fucked off at this that I watched Judas Priest play. And by the way, if you get the chance, try and find that performance on YouTube because it is scintillating, so exciting. Um, and uh, I still, you know, hearing him sing, you've got another thing coming to, uh, to 140,000 Brazilians going mental. That's a memory. So I probably at the end of that set said to the photographer I was with, my a good friend of mine, uh, Mark Mayaloha, said, you know, fuck this. I'm not staying here to watch Guns N' Roses. Let's go back to the hotel room and I'll review it on, off the telly and take a picture of them playing live on the telly in our hotel room and make sure people know it's on the telly. And I'm going to tell everyone why I came back and decided to review Guns N' Roses on the telly in my room <laughs> rather than stay at the gig. So I wrote this whole thing about, like, you know, I got wind that Rob wasn't going to be allowed to ride his bike. He did ride his bike on stage in the end, but the, the tone was set at that point in my head. I was like, fuck this, fuck that, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and so we ran this review. My, my editor was not especially pleased and thought it was a bit arrogant. Whatever. So a month later, I get a phone call. It's like, <laughs> it's like, hey, is this Stefan? I'm like, yeah, who's this? And he goes, it's Axel. And I said, oh, fuck off, Lars, and hung up. <laughs> I was so sure. I was so sure it was Lars ringing up, ringing me up to to wind me up, like having a wind up on me, you know, because I knew that they were quite tight at the time. And uh, and so then he called back, and I was like, "Well, how did you get my number?" It's like, "Well, we have a mutual friend. We have a mutual friend, Del James. That's uh, a really good guy." And oh so, yeah, Del James. He co-wrote some of the tunes on those usually yeah. albums. No, he's a great bloke. Del's great. And so you know, Del obviously being you know a, a man who understands how to cut to the chase but I said well why don't you just call him if you have a problem I mean I suspect that's what happened so Axel did call and in fairness you know he coded me for 15 minutes like this and that and this and that and then he said well why didn't you just find me why didn't you just get in touch with me? you could have asked me and I would have told you it was bullshit I would never do that and I said hang on I said you've just asked me if I could find you and ask you at Rocky Rio I said, do you know how hard it is to get to you I said, at that time, I was being asked to sign a contract to interview your guitar player and give you full rights over interview. I said, you're joking. I said, that I would never have been able to do that. And I would have been delighted. To. It is interesting, uh, the difference back then, if there was some review written about a band, whether it's a record or a live show or performance, like if you hadn't, if you didn't like it, like you would, you would you would take it up with that person where now it's like people see stuff online, like maybe bad press, bad review. And you're like, ah, whatever you ignore it. And you just move about your day. You know, it seems like it seemed like it was more personal back then. Yeah. There was a little bit more of that, you know? Uh, but I also think it's probably maybe it's to do with the fact that society was less, uh, well, there's less social media scrutiny at that point. Right. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't someone with a camera on you and less victim culture, less, less fake outrage. You know what I mean? It, Correct. I think that's yes. a big part of it too. I, I, <clears throat> I was a kid at that time, but I often, you know, you and I, Stefan talked about this for a while the other day, but I long for that time. I, I, I long for that shit. So before we jump back into Metallica, I'm just curious about this era. Yeah. So being a big faith, no more cat, which I know you kind of were on board with them pre Mike Patton, but when they were doing the yes, guns, Metallica faith, much. no more tour, were you around for all that too? Yeah. Yeah. I was around for, I was, I, I can't, it's spotty which dates, but I saw a fair amount of them. Were they touring the real thing? Is that is that the the record they no, were touring? No, it was Angel Dust. Angel was, Dust. Uh, okay. Record at that point. So Angel Dust was when, and it was a uh, it was unfortunate really because Axel um, Axel had shown. You know, I I actually have to say when I look back, I think <laughs> Axel's aim 
in, in terms of supporting other musicians has always been very true. I think he's always tried to give voice to bands that he likes. I mean, Soundgarden he had out, mm. you know, early doors on an arena tour. Faith No More mm. he bought out because he just liked them. He liked Faith No More. And I think he was a little disappointed that some of them were maybe being critical of the stadium tour at the time, you know, which I think Faith No More had hit. I think they'd hit a point of such inner strife that it was, you know, the sarcasm was spilling out into some pretty weird and bitter interviews that they were giving. Hmm. Uh, and I know that he was actually very disappointed by that, uh, for, for what I gathered Axel was. And I, I, I kind of get that, you know. But, uh, but fair faith no more at that time, uh, I thought were just brilliant. Yeah. And I know that there are people who will disagree. And even a couple of guys in faith no more would probably disagree. But, the sheer level of magic they had with that lineup was rooted, I think, in my in my observation, in the fact that there was this friction. And sometimes, you know, that lightning in a bottle that you get comes from that friction. Well, speaking of that, I mean, so let's let's get into the Saint Anger type world. Mm-hmm. Everything's going on. So you've they've made you editor in chief in what ninety nine, I think two thousand. So in my mind, as a kid at that time, Metallica were like. I mean, it's so hard to describe, but they were like gods. They were like, uh, they could do no wrong. They were invincible. And I think 2000 was maybe the last year of that. That was the last year of Metallica as can do no wrong. They were just the, the, the image of confidence to me. And then, of course, rolling through 2000, the stuff with Jason starts to come up. That Playboy interview is a really fascinating thing the year after that. So what's it like in your world? They've made you the new editor-in-chief of this magazine, which is a magazine about going deep. But it seems like that's one of the most tumultuous times in the band. So it seems like a pretty delicate needle to thread for you to do good work for what you've been hired to do, but also be respectful of the process and navigate all that. I mean, does, yeah. was that as chaotic for you as it seems like it would have been to me? No, no. I was completely oblivious to the uh, to, to, to the balances you're talking about. I had one mission, which was I felt very strongly uh, and it was much easier to feel this way because it was a print piece and the web was not really had not really taken off, remember. Um, I felt it was my mission to be the voice that the fans could trust. And I think that given that the band somewhat know that and knew that about me, I just felt that was my mission. So I was just trying to get any interviews I could and any conversations I could get going. I would just put my request in and see if it would happen, and, you know, and, and usually it would. I mean, what's fascinating is as well, it's a fascinating way of working. I reach out to, to the guys individually uh, uh, about whether they want to do this stuff. Of late, we've, we've worked with, um, I work with the band coordinator, Bree Gentry, who's been, you know, super helpful as well, just to get, you know, lively with their schedule and just to make sure I can slide into the schedule. Mm. Justin also from Q Prime will help with that sometimes. But essentially, I still to this day will say, hey, how about doing this? How about doing that? And then I'll set it up. It's all been that way. You know, I think, again, you say they're at the top of their game and indestructible. We, we did just talk about the fact that with Load and Reload, they got some backlash. So they were already quite, they were already kind of used to, I mean, they'd already ridden some up and down waves. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and probably gone through some self-reflection on, on how that had been and, and what that was. And, and you know, uh, I, I think as well, if I'm thinking about it, what we would have been late 20s, getting into early 30s. And, you know, that's also just just a kind of reflective time, time in life, life anyway. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then of course Jason stuff exploded, right? Yeah. That was probably. Uh, Can I ask you a really quick know. question, real quick before we move on from that? Are they aware that knuckleheads like us are like obsessed with the song Fixer, for example? Like, are they aware that there's a whole group of people that yes petition for them to play that damn song or or whatever it is that, <laughs> that we adore the yeah. outlaw torn and all this stuff? What you have to yes, and again, at the risk of sounding redundant, mm-hmm. uh, must always remember there is no bigger fan of metallica than lars it's a fact <laughs> his memory recall is insane right right i am in awe of him and it's not because i mean it's not because he's anal or, or self-obsessed it's just he just remembers he yeah yeah it's just who he is and of course he's he's yeah absolutely and you know he, he knows what it's he knows the joy of waiting for things as a fan and then giving it and yeah. then not right and mm-hmm. he enjoys i think I've actually not talked to him about that. Maybe it's something I'll talk to him about. But I suspect that he enjoys that that push and pull, that ride as well. You know. But it's again, it's 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 from a we're in it together thing, not mm-hmm. from a I'm in the band and you're a fan. You know. So yeah. I, 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 it's very hard to get this across to people and have them believe it. But I, he just does not. He doesn't think like that. It, it is all one massive. We're all in this together. Thing. He's listening right now, isn't he? <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's behind me, isn't he? He's right behind yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. I, so you were talking about the, you, you were talking about the Jason thing kind of blew up or whatever. And it was really interesting to go back through some of those so what's where, you know, they were already having issues with Jason with side projects even in ninety six. I'd I'd forgotten all about that. They'd already had a big talk. Oh, crazy. And then we know all about, <clears throat> you know, the Playboy interview and which, by the way, the the dude who wrote that Playboy interview reached out to me, Ethan, recently. I, I don't remember if we said nice things about him on the show or not, but anyway, uh, the they filmed the classic uh, albums for the Black album, which we know just through our investigations that there was a big convo that day. So we kind of know a little bit about all this blowing up, and man, at the time, it, at the time, it was just so out of nowhere and scary. We all, we know a lot of more context now, but. So you're saying that you would just put out your your bids for like, can I get this interview? Can I get that interview? And it, your job was just not a lot changed for you, right? So I don't look. I mean, again, one of the things I think that comes with knowing people for a long time is that you are either in tune with dynamics or you're not, right? So you're either in tune with people and the way and their personalities, or you're not. I, I, I I'm one of those people who kind of, you know. I, I, yeah, I can vibe off people and so on and so forth. So mm. that's kind of part of what helps me write how I write and ask the questions I ask and so on and so forth. So, you know, at that time, I think it was very obvious that things were coming to a head uh, with, with, with Jason and, and James in the band and so on and so forth. But I mean, I think again, you know, you're looking at men in their early thirties uh, and, and, you know, communication is not always comfortable. And being honest is not always comfortable and being afraid is not always comfortable mm-hmm. and being afraid of what you might lose. is not always comfortable. And I think James has addressed this in the past. And, you know, I think that, you know, a lot of the, the upset with, 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 with Jason was as much fear based as it was anything else, afraid of what might happen. So, you know, there was all of that. I think all those ingredients to me were always very prevalent. And look, you've done a lot more, research into into stories from that time than i have too much i would like to think well i would like <laughs> to hope that what comes out from stories subsequently 
about that relationship and over the years is that people put their hands up and years down the line, maybe 10 years down the line, have, have said, yeah, you know, we, we, we just didn't really know how to articulate what we were feeling. And so it all came out as anger. And I, I mean, that's, that's what I remember the most about that era, you know, was that it was quite frustrating in the sense of you'd sit there and you'd think, God, if only they just talk to each other in an open way, but it's just not, sometimes it's easier to see from the outside. And Well, I, yeah, I mean, we all have that, you know, for, for my whole life, it seems like I'm like, why can't Roger Waters and David Gilmore get in a damn room and figure it out? <laughs> But having now, I mean, now in my late thirties and been in bands and when you, sometimes when things get sideways, something as simple as just talking about it is just literally impossible. Exactly. And that's why any of this speculation or, or sort of almost like, you know, why didn't they and whatever, or, you know, perceived judgment, it's just bullshit really, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, I'm not them. I don't know. Their reasons must've been solid and strong. I mean, I'm just glad that everyone came out of it. Okay. And everyone seems to be doing fine. That's that's always, you know. But I think it was fear. There was a lot of fear back then. Yeah, sure. I think they were still grieving about Cliff yeah. in a sense as well. Still a lot of that. Well, we got Rob out of it. And, and I, I mean, I can't imagine the band without Rob. I just really can't even imagine it anymore. And, and um, you know, you called, when we were on the phone the other day, you called St. Anger one of the most, you called it the most honest record ever made. And one of the things that one we've of- said a lot on the show is give or take the aesthetics of the album. I mean, it, you know, it's not my favorite Metallica album, but I don't think they would be together if they hadn't made it. So it, yeah. it takes on this very spiritual significance for us that they had to get that record out and get through whatever that gauntlet was to get to the tour, which I think was one of the most exciting tours of their career, and Death Magnetic. I could probably spend an hour defending uh, St. <laughs> <Saint> Anger. Um <laughs> I feel very strongly about it. I think if you follow a band for their career, if you give them the latitude of taking in all their work and not just the bits you that like immediately you like, I think it is holds a, a, a place of great reverence. These guys articulate their feelings, emotions, thoughts, ideas through music mm-hmm. more clearly than any other medium. However, I'd like to think that my interviews are like, you know, they're second to the music. <laughs> right. The music is what <laughs> speaks for them. Every note, every riff, every lyric, right, speaks tons. And you would know as huge fans, if you deep dive into that, you know, riffs, arrangements, emotions, so on and so forth, you can plot where they're at. You really can. If yep. You listen to Master of Puppets, you hear the fury and, and raw anger and enthusiasm and excitement of young men fucking going out to conquer the world. You listen to the anger uh, 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 insane anger and you hear men who are still fucking sorting their shit out with each other it ain't over and this is how they're going to sling their their hooks at each other there's still some bubbling issues as they're making that record as they're writing it you know they don't, they don't have a bass player for christ's sake yeah mm-hmm. you know so bob rock is doing the absolutely manful job of keeping it all together as a producer and playing bass and you right. know, I've always said about Lars's snare sound. You know, when I hear these, you know, the, the, the tech heads going on about it and ripping it apart, so on and so forth, it's like language. It's it's like if you were to write a play, and there's a character who's shouting because they're fucking, they're, because they're filled with something, filled mm-hmm. with frustration. To me, that snare sound is frustration. Like, yeah, dang, 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 dang. That's 
that's someone saying fuck you you know whether that be fuck you we're back or fuck you i'm upset about something right hmm. and then the rawness of the riffs to me that's another voice and then kirk is doing what kirk does best at those times and did best at those times i should say or he did best at those times he's a conduit between everything so there's so much going on on that record and the lyrics are just some of the lyrics are just explosive hmm. i mean but, you know for for me i mean my world i mean come on i mean my world is like my world's my one world of my is, favorites my world is intense the end of that song is intense breaking it down into riffs how many great riffs are on that record i mean there's it's stacked with great riffs i think a lot of people couldn't get beyond the fact that the production was like a demo in many ways it was raw and visceral and and extremely hard on the ears and i also think a lot of people couldn't get over the fact that the songs were all really long and they were really long i mean some of them were probably too long but that's what had to be done at the time yeah mm-hmm. in my opinion why do you think they don't play much of that material these days i mean i know they've great got question. a huge catalog they've got great songs it's they're a, not it's, hurting it's for a, material but it's a great it's a great question and when we all get to you know enjoy life and somewhat close to the way that we were used to <laughs> Uh, it's a question I will be raising with them quite directly. I would love to see some of those songs. I mean, I suspect they're very, very hard to play. Yeah, uh, there's a right. lot of shifts, and 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 and, and I, I'm not a technical person or a musician by any stretch, so you guys could correct me on this. But to me, it would seem that there's, it's almost, it feels like that album has more shifts in it than the Justice songs for sure. I mean, that there's like you know, there's like three songs to every song as opposed to mm-hmm. two. Um, so I imagine it's probably quite hard to play. Yeah, it's it's comparable to that, and it's all in drop tuning. It's all different guitar Yeah, tunes. I, I get yeah. it. Having to relearn that stuff two years later. Yeah, maybe, but it's funny, Ethan. I don't know if that will be the challenge. Uh, I, I, I don't know. It's a, you know, it's a really good question. I wonder if some of those songs are hard to go back to. I wonder yeah. if that year is hard to go back to. I mean, I think we're coming up to an anniversary of that album uh, at some point soon. I can't quite mm-hmm. plug it, but it'll all be all to be discussed let's jump to hardwired here and we, we can kind of maybe start to camp out towards the end here which i do want to hear stefan before we split about the motorhead stuff you got going on whatever you can tell us um i do want to hear a little bit about that so hardwired comes out i mean we've talked about it a lot on the podcast ethan and i how proud we are to be fans after all this time they didn't just make some bullshit so they could go tour they made one of their best albums it's as good as anything Moth in the Flame is, to me, an instant classic. It's as good as Creeping Death. It's Creeping Death level, which is an insane achievement for these dudes at this mm-hmm. stage. Um, they go on this tour. They're doing arena stadiums. They're crisscrossing. the. I mean, it's almost it's like one of the biggest tours I've ever done. So mm-hmm. I think Hardwired represents yet another peak for the band, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. So what is your world like when Hardwired's getting made? The, my sense is that they didn't think that people would like it as much. I, I don't think they, my sense is they didn't even think the tours would be as successful as they were. It seemed like they were, were they surprised at how successful the album and the tours were? Yes. I think it's fair to say. Okay. Uh, I think that, I think that's fair to say. I, I, I think one thing with them that's probably important to always remember is I don't think they're ever mindful about whether something is going to be successful or not. I don't think that's at the forefront sure. at all and never has been. Yeah. I mean, they've always 
they really have always been quote unquote art driven, uh, yeah. which I think is probably one of the reasons that they're they're so bulletproof. I mean, even take something like Lulu, which again I could spend a long time defending, and again I think needs to be viewed as part of a canon of work as opposed to an individual record. You know, but even as an individual record, you will find riffs in that record that are, that are insane. I mean, insane. You know, mm. I mean, you know, the view is insane, insane riff. So, I think that hardwired. I completely agree with you on the writing. And you asked me what it's like for me at that, that time. I'll give you a window into how I re- relate to these projects as they're being made. And this goes to Saint Anger as well, and, and any of the records I've been, you know, right back to Master of Puppets, I suppose. I try and know as little as possible while it's being made. So when it came to, to Hardwired, I stayed out of the, I stayed out of the way. Wasn't, didn't want to know much. Didn't want to bug people. Hey, could you play me a snippet? Could you play me a riff? I'm not that person. It's not going to happen. Because for me, the only way I can get a proper evaluation on whether it's a good piece of work is for it to hit me as a, as a complete piece. You know, mm-hmm. now what they are very good at doing is they will always give me access to go and listen at my own leisure at the HQ studio when an album is done. So I was able to go and listen to that record probably a half dozen times in the course of a couple of weeks by myself, just sit in the cool. studio listen, um, and, and, and make my notes and make my evaluations that way. And that's, you know, and it's very important to be able to do that. So I, I heard that the same as everybody else. And I, I look, I have to say, I, I thought Death Magnetic was a great achievement. Mm-hmm. I think this was another another level uh, in terms of Metallica records. I think if you combined somehow hardwired self-destruct Death Magnetic, you could have had the greatest double album of all time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably. Um because I was thinking about it, like if you combined the two, it would have been a great record, but then what do you leave out? Like, I can't think of anything I'd really want to leave off uh, hardwired, you know, mm. at all. Mm-hmm. But anyway, to back to the point of your question, you know, you could feel this growing excitement um, at, at what was coming. The promo tour was great. I mean, I love I loved that the promo tour was a lot of fun. I thought it was a masterful uh, uh, move on the part of the band's management to play smaller venues to, to warm oh, yeah. up and to really about get like Webster Hall, Webster Hall, and yeah, fans. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah I love yeah, that. Yeah. Those gigs great. are great. Yeah, and they're great, and the band love them, the fans love them. It's just really, just, it's a good, it's it's a great thing. But and then I think the stadiums. What really blew me away about the stadiums is that they made those stadiums feel like theaters. They really did. And I was watching those gigs from all over. I'd watch them on the floor. I'd watch them from high on high, whatever. They they didn't feel as big as they were, but they were huge. And to your point about the tour, you know, I mean, you know, these are the guys who said they, you know, they wouldn't go on tour forever. And I mean, think, you know, World Magnetic was three three years long. I mean, bear, bear in mind they had a 50-show-a-year limit, which I'm sure you know about and mm-hmm. you've heard that. But still, it seemed like, yeah, it seemed like the tour, and, and it just seemed to get bigger and bigger. You know, one thing I'm, one thing I am actually proud of, uh, with, uh, I'm proud to work for a band with, with the ethic that is they will not do a show if it's going to be shitty. So they won't do 55 shows because they know that the five extra shows that are tacked on will see a drop off in their physical performance, and they will not do that. And I think that's I think that's brilliant. You know that when you buy a ticket, you're going to get what you paid for. They're going to give it. 
and they right. do. They work. I mean, I've I've written about this, but I I can tell you, they to me, it's the closest I've seen to a professional sports team in terms of their prep and in terms of how seriously they take their show. You mm-hmm. know, they they take it very seriously. They also want to be able to enjoy it. Were you yeah. reviewing every show you went? Because I have a memory of like reading a write-up of tons of shows. Yeah, you... no, that wasn't me. We started to introduce the fans into doing reviews, which is oh, great. Right. So yeah, I would review, right. typically I'd review the first show of a leg and the last show of a leg. Um, and yeah, I can't review, you know, for me to review every show, it, it, it would become, I, I don't think that's that's interesting for fans. And also <laughs> I love to get the fans involved. I think fan involved, the, the fans, what the fans have to say, I think is, 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 is interesting. And also fans right. speak to fans, right? So, I think it's sometimes more interesting for fans to, especially when it comes to reviews, to see what their, you know, their peer group is saying. Have you thought about writing a Metallica book? You know, never say never, but I think a Metallica book would have to be written by more than one person. You could write a great book on Lulu. And, yeah. and we did, you know, we did the So What book, which, you know. Which was, is great, uh, by the way. That was a lot of fun. And, and you know, it was a, I, I felt that, you know, eye candy for, for, for a long time with that. So, you know, I, we'll see. Well, before we split, which by the way, thank you so much for this time. This has been such a yeah, thank you. wonderful Not conversation. Yeah. You were telling me on the phone, this cool stuff that's going on with Lemmy. What, what can you, this motorhead stuff you're up to, can you talk about any of that stuff? I've helped with motorhead for, for many, many years. Lemmy and I, as I sort of would have suggested at the beginning of this conversation because of our uh, relationship with, you know, I, he would trust me to work with him on making sure that we put together good album packages and good designs and so on and so forth. And, you know, being a very loyal person, uh, I obviously wanted to make sure that, you know, Lars and James and everyone never had an issue. They didn't because they also love, you know, love Motorhead. So I think they were like, no, you know, he's all of our heroes, of course, Mm -hmm. you know, you're being asked. So, you know, what has happened since uh, is that I've somewhat been part of a team uh, the management team there that um, looks after the legacy and makes sure that the you know that when things are released that they are done with respect, done with the, with the you know the right nod to to the music. And so we've done a couple of the box sets now with with BMG. Um, did one called Seventy Nine, which was Bomber and Overkill combined, and I got to recreate a music magazine off from the era where we interviewed a bunch of people who were involved in those two records and and also pulled some really great audio from the archives that nobody had heard. And uh, we've, we've done a similar with the Spades uh, anniversary, but we've probably bumped it up a notch in terms of what fans get. And it's just really, I, I feel it's curatorial duty, really. It's to yeah. make sure that these things are done with the spirit. And, you know, look, you know, people always say, you know, oh, would Lem love it? I, you know, as I always say, I think Lem would, Lem would give you a, a raised eyebrow and, and a nod and a thumbs up for it. I mean, if Lem had his way, you know, I think it would, uh, you know, maybe be black and white t-shirts forever. <laughs> right. But he really did come to appreciate towards the end uh, of, 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 of his career and his time with us. Um, you know, he came to appreciate the, the wider range and scope of Motorhead and its cultural importance. And I think he, you know, I think he totally understood that, you know, it's no, He's never he's a very smart man. I mean, you can, everyone can see the way the world is going in terms of social media and so on and so forth. So he just wanted to make sure that the people he trusted were in and looking after this stuff. 
you know, and for for me and for uh, you know everyone, uh, the, the manager and management. I think it's all about keeping the music not just alive, but reintroducing it to people who might otherwise not know it. It's in consciousness mm-hmm. that there are people who do not know about most things for Hammersmith or the Overcorrect Race of Spades. It's, you know, it boils down to this. People need to know about these records because they're fucking brilliant. Yeah. Right, yeah, they are. And Lemmy needs to be known and remembered and constantly venerated because he's completely and utterly unique. Yep. No, no one like him. No, no one like him. And, you know, that's said by about many people, but there is no one like them. And if anyone listening has never seen the Lemmy documentary, p- please do. I know you had involvement in that as well. Yeah. But that's a, gr- a great look into his life, man. And, uh, and just to what a unique individual he was. Yeah. Greg and, uh, and Wes made a very, really good film there. It's got, it's got some stuff in it that I would always, I wish had been, was not in maybe, but I didn't make the film. My mm-hmm. job was to support them in making it and, and, and to help make sure that they, them and them and the crew and everyone got on really well and, and to get them on their way. I did insist on a few things there. I insisted that they made sure that people understood that Lemmy uh, loved women and appreciated women far beyond the realm of sexual prowess. I mean, mm-hmm. he was pricked by women. And he's an in, and always had an innate relationship with women on that basis. Very respectful, and loved, you know. And I wanted that to come out, so I was insistent that his Hawkwind uh, era be be captured because some of the some of his Hawkwind stuff is just mind blowing. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't far into his Hawkwind career you go or know, but investigate. It's it's phenomenal and it's and, great stuff. Yeah. God, Space Joy is one of the greatest live records. What a trip. I think it says a lot about you that <clears throat> that you're part of a curation team to help preserve that. I think it says a lot about you that after that first round table in 96, they still had you back <laughs> and even gave you the gig of editor-in-chief. And uh, we're grateful that you're in the yeah, Metallica man. world, dude. We really are. I've, I've enjoyed your work from afar for a long time, and I'm really glad that uh, you're now a friend of Metal Up Your Podcast. It really means a lot to us. Oh, thank yeah, you man. very much. And, and, and it would be... It, most un-British of me if I didn't say, you know, there are a lot of good people in the Metallica camp who work and do a lot of really important things, far more important than I do, I may say. Um, and, and uh, you know, they all deserve a shout out as well. We've got a great, I think we've got some great people who run the Met Club and, and they, they, they really help, you know, keep the connection with the fans. And, and fans should know, you know, I understand people getting grumpy about the old school, the new school, whatever, but the sole intention is always to do the best for, for the fans. It really yep. is. It's that simple. Simple as what you see on the tin and everything else is just conspiratorial bullshit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Love it. It's the truth. You know, I mean, I don't know. Then we're getting into this thing where I start using words like family and all that. And you may laugh, but you know, I've known these guys, right? I've known these guys since 1984. Yeah. I have no brothers and sisters. Okay, so you do the you do the you do the human math on that. I've known people like Vicky Strait, who runs the the, the fan club since nineteen ninety nine. You do the human math on that. When you say that these relationships feel like family, you know, they do. They they, are, they yeah. feel like that because they are. Well, we, I mean, just as two podcast nerds out here in the world, we really appreciate you letting us take a peek into that. I know it's a family and and. Uh, we're really grateful, man. We really are. Uh, thank you very much indeed for having me. 
Hey everyone, this is Ethan and Clint. We're here to tell you about supporting the show via Patreon. That's right. Every week, Ethan and I work hard to bring you the best Metallica content possible. If you think the show has value, consider supporting us on a financial level at Patreon. For $5 a month, or the price of two cups of coffee, you can ensure that Metal Up Your Podcast continues to grow in quality and content. But that's not all. In addition to being able to help sleep at night for supporting your favorite podcast, we've also come up with incentives to say thank you that are exclusively available to patrons. For example, for a pledge of $5 or more, you immediately get free downloads of every cover our world blackened ep ticket giveaways for shows like snm2 and slaying castle box sets rare vinyl metallica memorabilia like snm2 guitar picks email priority meaning we'll read your email first on the show the chance to ask guests like hailstorm jay weinberg of slipknot and metallica row crew your very own questions and the opportunity to come on the show as a guest for our metal tales bonus episodes in which you can tell us all about any Metallica show you've been to in the past. All this and more for becoming a patron and supporting Metal Up Your Podcast. We couldn't do this show without you, and to everyone on the ride with us, we sincerely thank you. Peace. Adios. Well, there you have it. He's a sweetie pie. What a sweetie pie. I mean, honestly... Uh, we've read the So What book and issues of So What and a lot of his, his his publications over the years. Just just getting to talk to him and hear some stories and 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 kind of have that good conversation with him, man, was just a treat. It really was. Like I I feel very honored to have been a part of that. Yeah, I agree. So thank you to Stefan for gracing the podcast with your presence. I'm sure our paths will cross again in the future. To all of you out there in Metal Your Podcast Land who listen, we love you. We appreciate you. And uh take care of yourself, take care of your families, go do the right thing, leave the That's iTunes right. review. Check out the Patreon if you can. Check out the Lunar Satan shit if you can, because it's it's almost done, baby. It's almost over, and it, it, uh, it's almost done. And don't forget to have fun always, and always have fun because it's really important that you do that. And if you get a neat <laughs> shirt, you can wear it while you're having fun. That's right. You can wear it when you're playing the Ryman. All right, babies, take care of yourselves out there. Peace. Adios. <laughs> Our advice or what would you say? Then I would say, delete that. <laughs> <laughs>